Well, good morning. We are going to be this morning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and I just again want to reiterate kind of what Kevin said at the beginning, if you walked in late. Um, when we walk through a book of the Bible, one of the things that I think is glorious is it, it doesn't allow us to sidetrack difficult subjects. It forces us to deal with things we need to talk about uh, that are in Scripture, and we find ourselves in one of those this morning. Um, Kevin said uh, a little bit PG-13 this morning. Um, I think that's a good, good comment, is one of the topics we'll be talking about this morning is sexuality. And so parents, I'm a parent of, of three teenagers, um, I, and, and I want to tackle this subject biblically, but I also want to be sensitive to the fact that if you have young ones in here or younger children, that if you want to take a moment to take them to Life Kids or step out, we want to create just some space for you to be allowed to do that and, and, and at no judgment because, again, it's an issue that we know we want to talk about biblically. We also want to respect parents' rights to talk about it at, at the level and time that they feel is appropriate. So we're going to be in First Thessalonians 4 uh, this morning, and why don't we take a moment to pray. And again, parents, if, if you have a younger one in here and you feel that maybe you'd like them to step out, we want to give you space to do that at this time. Um, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you have not left us without understanding of who you are. Lord, we thank you as we just sang this morning that you have given us the Holy Spirit, that you have uh, called us a child of God. Lord, as we read through scripture, we see the greatest title that we could ever be given is not spouse, it's not CEO, it's not pastor, it's not boss or manager, the greatest title that we could ever be given is child of God. And scripture clearly shows how we are made that through the finished work of Jesus Christ, through his work on the cross, through his perfect obedience to the Father. And so we praise and thank you that our identity is not wrapped in our occupation, it's not wrapped in our marital status, it's not wrapped in our parental status, our identity is not wrapped in, as, as Britt so beautifully told us last week, in what my classmates or my coworkers or my, co- or my neighbors call me, my identity in Christ is wrapped up in you. We praise and we thank you for it. Lord, as we open scripture this morning, we pray that we would come with humble hearts that we would come under Scripture, Lord, that we would allow it to speak, we would allow it to guide, and that we would allow every thought to be held captive by you and you alone. We pray this in your Son's glorious name. Amen. We're in First Thessalonians 4. I will be in the ESV, and whether you have a Bible or a tablet, or if you don't have a Bible, we encourage you to grab one in the chairs around you. Whatever version you'll be in, we encourage you to follow along. We're in 1 Thessalonians 4, but I want to start in the beginning. If you go back to the beginning of the Bible, you see God in Genesis 1 create everything out of nothing. And as Genesis 1 unfolds, you see God make the heavens and the earth. You see land formed. You see the seas formed. You see plants and vegetation created. You see fish put in the sea. You see birds put in the sky and and animals uh, roaming the earth. You see the, the stars and the planets hung in the sky. And then in Genesis 1, you see God make man and woman, male and female, in the likeness in God, in the, as we would say in, in theology classes, in the imagio Dei, that we're made in the, the image of God, that we are all men and women image bearers. And as Genesis 1 and 2 unfold, there are three items that are interesting to see in creation that are worth noting. 
First, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, God creates Adam and he places him in the garden to work it, to cultivate it. And so in the creation account, we see God blessing and ordaining work. And God makes Adam and Eve, and in Genesis 1, 28, we see the call for them to be fruitful and to multiply. And so in the creation account, we, just, we see not only God blessing work, but also the area of sex. And then in Genesis chapter 2, we see that God has placed the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. It says, don't eat of it or you will surely die. Now, Adam and Eve disobey in Genesis 3, and they eat of the tree, and death most certainly enters this world. And before you get to the end of Genesis chapter 4, each of those items is impacted by the fall. Death enters through Adam and Eve's disobedience. Work is transformed, and we're told in Genesis 3 that now, Adam, your work is going to be toil. It's going to be difficult labor. You get to Genesis chapter 4, and we see, unfortunately, Cain murder Abel. And just a few verses later, we're introduced in genealogy to a man named Lamech, who we are simply told has two wives. And so from Genesis 3 to Genesis chapter 4, we see that the sin and the fall of man damages uh, the issue of life and death of work and of sex. This morning we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and and Paul is going to make a major transition at this point in the letter that we've been looking at. In the first three chapters, he has been looking back at his relationship with them. He's been thankful for their walking with God and their coming to Christ, and he sent Timothy to go check on them, and Timothy came back, and he's praising God for the report. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul makes a major transition in the letter, going from looking back with his relationship to them and now looking in the present and future in his relationship with them. Here are some things I want you to be thinking about. And as Paul addresses some of these topics that um, he wants to press in on, as Timothy has come back and given a report, here's how things are going in Thessalonica. Paul needs to press in on a few areas that the church needs to continue to grow in. Those three areas are the areas that we find in the creation mandate, sex and work and death. Now this week we're going to cover the first two, and we look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Next week, Pastor James will uh, hit on the third issue of death when he picks it up in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through the end of chapter 4. Paul has to address this issue because he is desiring for them, as our desire is for each of us, to walk in a manner that is worthy of God, that we want our our daily routines to be ones that are honoring to God. And Paul has to address the church because they have distorted the way they view these three areas. They live in a culture that has a, a warped view of sex. They live in a culture that has a low view of work. And the Thessalonians live in a world that has a a twisted view or a wrong view about life and death. Now, for those who think the Bible is irrelevant today, stop and think about what I just said is going on in Thessalonica at the moment. There's a warped view of sex, a low view of work, and a struggle in understanding the concepts of life and death. We deal with that daily in our culture today. Over the past few weeks, we've been looking at 1 Thessalonians in this call to be faithful in our relationship with God. This morning, we want to talk about walking so as to please God. And here is our big idea this morning that I want us to be thinking about. You're going to see it on the screen behind me, and it's this. Our relationship with God in Christ 
is a call to allow him to lead in all areas of our lives, including how we approach, we're going to see this morning, our view of sex and work. This week, we're going to see how these areas of our lives very much do matter to God in how we walk before him. If you're with me uh, in Scripture, I encourage you to follow along in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. They'll be on the screen behind me as well. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. I want to look at three things this morning in our relationship with God. And the first one is this that we see in the first two verses. And it's this, our relationship with God in Christ is one where we are called to walk in a way that pleases God. Let's look at the first two verses. If you're in the ESV, it opens up with, finally then. As I noted earlier, this is a massive transition in the letter going from chapter 3 to chapter 4, from looking back to looking in the present and looking forward. When Paul says, finally, then, in our minds, we might think, well, he's getting ready to land the plane. And then, like a great preacher, he takes off again and goes on for another 20 minutes, right, Um, for two more chapters. When Paul says, finally, then, he's not getting ready to wrap up the letter. I think, actually, we would do better or do more justice to this if we thought about it as, and now. And now we need to talk about a few things, is what he says. Um, Not finally, as in let's wrap this up, but now let's talk about a few things. I'm going to ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. He says, I am going to strongly plead with you to adopt the following conduct in the Lord Jesus. You, As you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you're doing, do so more and more. You get into verse 2, he says, this is, this is not the first time we've talked about the issues we're about to talk about. So, so Paul is not bringing up arbitrary issues. He says, look, we've talked about these before. Timmy has come back and given his report and said, you're still struggling with some of these thoughts, and, and we need to kind of clear up a few things. And as we do so, we want to do so through the lens of walking in Christ in a manner that pleases God. And he says, listen, we urge you and we're asking you he says look we're not giving you like a friendly suggestion or a you know you might want to think about and and we're not just some guy off the street saying you know what you should have done but instead he says what we're saying is this in christ jesus not our opinion paul says but in christ rooted in christ because apart from him you're not going to walk in this way but in christ we want you to walk in a way that pleases god okay what does that look like It can be summed up very simply like this. A life that pleases God 
is one where God's interests are your primary ambition. That's it. Don't overcomplicate it. A life that is one that is walking in a manner that is pleasing to God is one where God's interests are your primary ambition. Christ modeled this for us when he walked here on earth in John 8, 29. We were told in John 8, 29 that as he walked this earth, he said, I walk in a way that always pleases the Father. Paul told us in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, that I am on this earth not to please man, but to please God. In John chapter 10, verse 4 and 5, Jesus told us that he is the good shepherd. And as the good shepherd, he says, listen, I go out in front of my sheep, and I lead them, they hear my voice, they know my voice, and they follow my voice. We hear his voice, we see his call in his word, and he says, let me lead. The alternative is this. We grieve the Holy Spirit. As we sang about this morning, we, we celebrate the Holy Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 8, in just a couple of verses, he tells us that God is the one who gives us the Holy Spirit, that he plays an active role in our walking in obedience. And so what he's saying is, is this, and he tells us later on, Paul will tell us in Romans chapter 5, verses 5 through 8, that really you can walk by the flesh or you can walk by the Spirit. You can walk and let your earthly flesh guide you, which is in opposition of what God is calling to, or you can let the Holy Spirit guide. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, he again reminds us that we are sealed at salvation by the Holy Spirit, and that when we disobey God's voice, we are grieving the Holy Spirit. So really what Scripture is telling us is this. When it comes to letting God lead us in this manner, to walk in a manner worthy of Him in any area of life, You've really got two options. You let God's voice lead, or you grieve the Holy Spirit. You walk in obedience to Him, or you're walking in obedience to flesh. And as Paul would tell you in Romans chapter 8, the mind set on flesh is not set on God and the things that He has called us to. So, how do I walk in a way that pleases God? Obedience to His voice. Allowing the things that are his interest be your primary ambition is the guiding principle. Now, with that said, he dives into two topics that we're going to look at this morning. Let's look at verses 3 through 8. And what we're going to see, our second point that we want to look at is this. A walk that pleases God in Christ is one that lets God shape our view of, of sex. Verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality that each one of you know how to conduct, control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and soundly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Let's just begin by saying this. We could take these two topics and do six, eight-week series on them and still not exhaust our need to understand these better. So um, if I hit on some areas, you're like, man, you miss talking about this. You miss talking about this. We want to be confined to the text right now and really just begin the thought process of thinking through this through the lens of God, okay? Now, if you are in Thessalonica at the time, life is pretty simple. If you want food, go get food. If you want water, go get water. 
If you want sex, go get sex, because there's no shortage of it in Thessalonica. In the Greek and Roman culture, it was available in any and every form that you can imagine. You had your wife for bearing legitimate children, and they raised them. After that, if you were a man, all bets were off. You want another woman? Go find another woman. You have a slave? Go enjoy. You want to go to the temple in the gods and goddesses? Go enjoy. You want to go pay for it? Go enjoy. You want a woman? Great. You want a man? Great. You want a young woman? Great. Young man? Great. Young man? Young woman? Great. Nothing was out of bounds with the exception of two things. Number one was you didn't touch somebody else's wife. That was out of bounds. Number two, if you were a woman and you were married, you were confined to your husband. Those were really the rules that governed this practice in Thessalonica at the time. If you were a man and married, all bets were off except you didn't touch somebody else's wife. And if you were a woman and you were married, you stayed within the confines of marriage. This is the culture in which people from Thessalonica were coming to Christ out of. And now they have a, a warped cultural view of how to look at this issue. So what does Paul say to them after Timothy has come back and shared what's going on? Before we get into that, let's just say just two things very quickly. First off, we need to clear up this, that God is not anti-sex. And I think for many years in the church, we have pushed that agenda. We just don't want to talk about it. God is not anti-sex. As we said earlier, in the creation mandate, he calls us to be fruitful and to multiply. So it's been given to us as a gift. Now, second, what we also need to keep in mind, and I'm just going to say this with, with great sensitivity, is God did not give us sex only for procreation. The same God who called us in Genesis 1 to be fruitful and multiply gave us the Song of Solomon. And I'm sorry if you think the Song of Solomon is about Jesus' love for the church. It's not. It's about the love of a husband and a wife, talked about verbally and expressed physically. And so God is not anti-sex. He's given us a whole book about celebrating that within marriage. Now, in saying that, we need to understand that we need to allow Scripture and God to guide our understanding in a sex-saturated culture as to what is the proper expression of this in our world today. And I think it's an important question the Thessalonians needed to think about, and it still matters for us today. So what does Paul say here in verse 3? He says, "Your will, his will is your sanctification. Okay, what does that mean? If you remember last week when we were in, in chapter 3, verse uh, 12 and 13, we saw this, this call to, to holiness. When we think of the word sanctification and holiness, what they mean is, is to be set apart. And we talked about this a little bit last week. Remember God said in Leviticus 19.2 and again in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, that we are to be holy because He is holy. So what does sanctification mean? Sanctification is there's positional sanctification that when you have come to understand who Jesus Christ is as your Lord and Savior, that you can't earn your way to God, that you can only be made right with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ, his perfect walk of obedience to the Father. Remember, he walked to please the Father. He walked in perfect obedience, lived a perfect life before the Father, and in the end went to the cross and said, count my perfection to their account, count their sin to my account. God says it's acceptable, and those who have who have thrown themselves at the gift of Jesus Christ and said, yes, count me as a follower of Christ. I, I accept his gift on my behalf. I accept his death on my behalf. For those who've come to understand who Christ is, we are in that moment sanctified, set apart, considered holy in Christ. Now that's positional sanctification. There's also the call to walk out our sanctification. And what that simply means is this, that on a daily basis we're called to become more and more Christ-like. 
that we're called to grow in our walk with God, as Paul is urging them to do here. Paul says our, uh, our call is to be sanctified, to be holy, to be set apart, to become more Christ-like in all areas of our life. And what Paul is saying is this is to be the guiding principle when we approach this topic. What he's saying is this. Sexual expression that falls outside of his parameters. We're to flee from. Look at verse 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain or you should flee from sexual immorality. Sexual expression outside of his will, outside of the will of sanctification, is sin, is what he's saying here. Now, let's think about this for a moment. This concept of sexual immorality, this concept of sexual immorality, it is uh, the Greek word is porneus, from which we get the word porn. When we think about that, we think of really demeaning, degrading images or things that, that we've been told is just wrong. And what we do when we study scripture and see this word, what we understand, what we come to understand is this. That term has a much broader meaning than what we give it. And it actually is applied in Scripture to any type of expression outside of a heterosexual union. So, as he's saying that, what he's saying is this. Outside of that, you're not expressing yourself properly. You should abstain from this because your sanctification, your becoming more Christ-like, is staying within the parameters that he has given us. Now, this includes both activity as well as our heart, our eyes, and our mind. Because as Jesus told us in Matthew 5, 27 and 30, he says, listen, you think improper expression of this area is when you touch someone who's not your wife. You know what? That's wrong. But what you also need to understand is this. When you look at him or her in a wrong way, when you think about him or her in an improper way, you are stepping outside of the bounds of what I've called you to and expressing yourself in the area of sexuality. And so we need to understand that as Paul is calling us now in 1 Thessalonians 4 to walk in sanctification in this area, he's talking about our action as well as we have to think about the concept that Christ talked about, our eyes, our heart, and our mind. Don't fall into the trap of thinking, if I'm engaged in a marriage, but I am letting my eyes wander, that I'm having fun just fantasizing, that I'm okay. God says, no, you're stepping outside of the bounds of what I've called you to. Now, as he's saying this, he goes on in verse 4. In verse 4, there is a translation debate. It says, each one of you know how to control his own body. Some people think that should be um, translated your own body or your own vessel, that you should just control yourself. Other people think it actually should be translated more of like acquiring a spouse, that if, if you can't control yourself, acquire a spouse. Now, we're, we're really not quite sure what was being said here, but here's what we need to remember. There was no confusion among the Thessalonians because Paul said, we've talked about this already. So they very much know what Paul is talking about. And whether you think this is about controlling your own body or, you know what, maybe just get a proper outlet to, to channel your energies in that way, what Paul is saying is this, regardless of which way you want to translate it, what we see in, in verse 4 is we're to be acting in holiness and in honor. We're to conduct ourselves in a way, we're to express ourselves in a way that is not dishonoring to our God. And, and what determines our conduct is this, he says in verse 4, that we are expressing ourselves in a way that is sanctifying, set apart for God's glory, and is honoring to God, is holy. And look what he says in verse 5. Don't allow your expression in this area to be controlled by lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Paul says, listen, 
What determines our conduct is not a desire to satisfy passions. It's a desire to satisfy God. In sex, yes. He has come to be Lord over not just some areas of your life, but all areas of our lives, including in how we express ourselves in this manner. And he says, listen, in verse 5, listen to what he is saying in verse 5. He says, when you are allowing something other than God's word to, to steer the ship in this area, when you're allowing something other than God's word to be the determining factor in how you express yourself in this matter, he's saying, you are walking like a non-believer. That's what he's saying in verse 5. Don't walk like a non-believer and just let your lust control yourself. Walk in a way that's honoring to God. Look what he says now in verse 6. He says, when you step outside of the bounds of what God has called us to, you are wronging your brother in this matter. Look at what he's saying. He says, listen, how do we think through this area? He says, you should let God's standard be the guiding principle in this area of your life. When you don't, you're walking no different than an unbeliever. And when you do that, he says, you not only harm yourself, look what he says in verse 6. He says, you're actually harming the other individual you're doing this with. So now what that means is this, when I'm engaged in, in willing activity outside of the confines of what God has called me to, not only am I transgressing what God has called me to, I'm encouraging my brother or sister in Christ to do the same. And then look what he says in verse 6. He says, listen, the Lord is an avenger in this area. What he's saying is this, there is nothing outside of the scope of what God will hold us accountable for including the very closed, intimate areas of our bedroom. They're there to be held in a way that is honoring to God. When they're not, he says, you are walking in sexual lifestyle no different than the lost. You were bought by the blood of Christ to be set apart and to honor God, including in the area of sexuality. Let, let that sink in. That you're called to represent him in the way you express yourself sexually. Paul then says in verse 8, if you want to disregard this, that's fine. But you're not disregarding man, you're disregarding God. You want to walk home and say, you know what, man, that pastor's out of his mind, he ain't in touch with reality, he's not in touch with society, that's up to you. I'm just talking about what's on the page. And he says, if you want to say, you know what, forget it, man. I don't agree with it. Culture, that's ridiculous. Understand you're not violating my or anyone else's opinion. You're violating God's call. Okay, so how do I apply this? First, it may mean that we may be here and need to repent and ask God for forgiveness because we have not let him guide us in this. And we have for too long let culture define how I should act in this matter. And if you need to do that, I encourage you to do so. Second, I want to think about this just for a moment as singles. I want to talk for a moment to, to, to our singles as well as some of our students who are here in this room. You are in a world, and I am raising three children in this world, where the doors have been blown wide open in what's appropriate and acceptable culturally. 
And I'll tell you the same thing I tell my kids. Don't let culture define what God gave you as a gift. Don't. It's not worth it. If you are here and you are single, God has gifted you with singleness. You may feel like it's a gift I want to give back. But God has gifted you with that, and Paul talks about the glories of that in 1 Corinthians 7. It's not a second-class citizen. How do you know if Paul has gifted you with singleness? If you're single, you have that gift right now. God may choose to give you the gift of marriage later on in life. He may choose not to. Either way, honor him in the status that he has you. Now to my older singles, talking to you Gen Xers and baby boomers, kind of my people and above, you may be single, you may be single again through death or divorce, and you have grown up in a world where the doors are being kicked open for the first time. And you grew up in a world where you're being told, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. And God's word says, no. You, for too long, let culture define how you should be expressing yourself. Please, if you are single and you are like 40, 50, 60, don't think that's just a message for the young kids. Honor God in the way that you conduct yourself in this area, physically, mentally, emotionally, with your eyes, your heart, and your mind. If you are unmarried, know the expression of sex is to be held captive by God. If you're married, understand that the expression of sex is to be held captive by God. Guard your eyes. Guard your heart. Understand, and I'm going to say this very sensitively because it happens, but marriage does not give you the right to sex. And marriage is not a call to fulfill whatever desire you want at the expense of shaming or degrading the other. Remember what he says here in verse 4. You're to conduct yourself in holiness and in honor. Our relationship with God in Christ is one where we're called to walk in a way that pleases God. That includes how we let him shape our view of sex. Paul now in verse 9 transitions to the issue of work. Now, verse 9, a new topic that Paul is not picking haphazardly, but is an issue in the area of Thessalonica right now, and for us as well. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Paul says there's a new topic, but we're still going through the lens of verses 1 and 2, that we want to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. We want to walk in a manner in Christ worthy of God. And he says, you've been taught to love each other, and you are doing this well, Paul says in verse 9. You're doing a great job, he says in verse 10. But let me show you and let me encourage you in how you can love each other a little bit better. He now wants to address a group of individuals who are not working. Now, if you were to read ahead into 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14, he will address a group of people that he calls idle, I-D-L-E, idle people. People are doing nothing. And he'll address them more in 2 Thessalonians there are a group of people in Thessalonica that are not working. Now, please understand when I say this. It's not that they're physically unable to work. And it's not that they can't find work. He is addressing people who can work, have work available, and have refused to work. These are people who actually have just quit working. 
And they've quit working for two reasons. Uh, Number one, they've stopped working because they believe Christ is coming back soon. And Christ is coming back, and Paul will talk about that next. He is coming back. But until he comes back, he wants to encourage them, get back to work. Now, here's the deal. They've stopped working, and this has led to idleness. It has led to busybodies. That's why he says in verse 11, mind your own affairs. Because let's be honest, when we have nothing better to do, we fill it with some pretty destructive things, don't we? Including like, hey, did you hear about Jimmy? Hey, did you hear about Sally? Yeah, what's going on there? Oh, really? Yeah. Well, I'm just, this is a prayer request. All right, that's the Christian way of getting out of gossip, right? So they're not working and they're just being busybodies. And the other issue is this. Um, in this culture at this time, manual labor was really looked down upon. Like the goal in their society was either you don't have to work or you don't work with your hands. And they really degraded manual labor. And unfortunately, I think our culture does it again. And so you have individuals who have simply stopped working. And they are now becoming a drain on their brothers and sisters in Christ who have to care for them. Again, we're not talking about people who can't physically work. And we're not talking about people who don't have work available. We're talking about people who can work. Work is there for them, and they're just not doing it. And please don't hear me to say that if you're at home, that you're not working if you're raising your children. That is one of the ultimate sacrifices you can make. So don't hear me in saying that I'm saying, boy, moms, you should be off uh, getting some job. Man, i got to tell you, I watched my wife, three kids. I was a pastor of like 200 people. I had the easier job, all right? So parents, don't misunderstand me here. But what he's talking about are people who should be working, can be working, have jobs available, and they simply are not doing it. And he says, listen, when, you, when you're doing this, you're, you're, you're causing your other brothers and sisters in Christ, they have to work harder to care for you, and you're not showing them love. He says, not only that, but look at verse 12, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and not be dependent on no one. He says, you're not being a good witness. Remember earlier in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, Paul said, look, when I came to you guys and shared the gospel, I also worked with my hands so I wasn't a burden to you. Paul actually led the way in this culture of saying, look, I'm going to work with my hands so I'm not a burden to the brothers and sisters in Christ as I'm sharing the gospel. And he says, uh, listen, I have honored God in my work ethic and now I'm calling you to do so. And again, we live in a culture where we cannot let the lost define work. This could be a series all in itself. Our culture now tells us if you don't enjoy your job, don't work hard at it. If your boss is a jerk, don't work hard for him or her. If your boss isn't looking, have fun. Maybe you are the boss and you're setting up work practices or expectations that are really improper or pushing the lines of legality or have blown past into illegality. Our culture sometimes views work as a necessary evil. i got to do it to pay the bills. I have to do it to... My favorite word, adult. (laughs) Staff knows how much I enjoy that word. Or I've got to work so I can get the money to go do what I really want to do, which is not be here with you people, right? That's, That's how we view work. Go back to the creation mandate. God placed Adam in the garden, not to just run around and enjoy nature, but to work and cultivate the garden to worship God in the way that they worked. Fast forward to Revelation 22, verse 3. And you'll see us in heaven, redeemed in Christ, and we're described as his servants who are worshiping him. We could talk on this subject for hours, but what I want us to think about as we kind of wrap up here is this, that our work ethic 
how we approach our jobs is worship before God. It's how we bear witness to God. It's how we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's how we show a lost world who God is. I think one of the best verses that you could ever write down on, on work, I think, is Colossians 3.22. And in Colossians 3.22, Paul is addressing slaves and their, their, their uh, relationship to masters. And some of you may feel like a slave at work, but you're not a slave, okay? But what he says is this to the, to the servants. Stop working for your boss and for eye service. Basically saying, stop working only hard when your boss is around. Because your boss isn't your boss. You're working for God. Work for him who is always watching you. Don't just work to please the boss when he's around. I read of a pastor who once asked a congregation member what she did for a living. I love her response. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, cleverly disguised as a machine operator. Stop looking around at a broken world and letting it define how you approach work. And I would include students how you approach your work in school. It's your job right now. There you go, parents. Have that one, that one. <laughs> stop, students as well as parents, giving half-hearted effort. Stop cutting corners, but instead glorify God. Let him guide your effort, your attitude, and your interaction with the people you come into contact in your work environment. Our relationship with God in Christ is when we're called to walk in a way that pleases God in all areas of life. That includes, he shows us today, areas of sex and areas of work. I'm not a dentist, so if you're in this community today and you're in the dental profession, I butcher this, bear with me and just love me. What I've been told in the dental world is this, uh, you don't want bifurcation. And what I'm, from my understanding what bifurcation is at the root of your tooth, it splits into two. And you have to take that tooth and make it whole again. You have to make it one. You have to bond it or bind it or whatever the word is that we don't want. You sit in a chair and you cry while they're fixing it, right? Okay? And what you don't want bifurcation. What it means is it's, it's, it's at the root, at its base, it's split. And if it doesn't become whole again, it's going gonna, it's gonna to rot and it's going to die and it's eventually going to impact the other areas of your life. Christians, we can't lead lives of bifurcation. Where at the root, at the base, our lives are split, and we say, these are the areas I will let God into, and these are the areas that are reserved for me, or, or God just doesn't understand what it means to get by in a world today. You have to lead a, a life of wholeness. We have to remember, as, as R.C. Sproul would say, that all of life, everything that we do, is lived, as he would say in the Latin, carum deo, openly before the face of God. Take that mentality into the way we express ourselves both in the areas of sexuality and in work. I will honor God and live openly before him as he guides me in these areas. Join me in prayer as the worship team comes back out. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we could talk through what can be an uncomfortable subject, both of them. And yet, Lord, what we're reminded beautifully by Paul is there is no area of our lives that are outside of your scope or outside of what you are calling us to honor you in. That you have called us to, um, you've called us to holiness. You've called us to live a life openly before you. You have called us, you have redeemed us for so much more than what this broken world tells us is worthwhile. Lord, may you be Lord, not of some areas of our life. May you be Lord of all areas of our life. 
Lord, as a parent, I pray desperately for our young hearts and minds who are in this room this morning, who are living in a world where both of these areas are so degraded. We have skewed and warped visions of both sex and work, and yet, Lord, it is no mystery that Satan would do that when you have shown us beautifully that they were there in the garden as a way to honor you and glorify you. And Lord, I pray, Lord, I pray for our parents that they would have open and honest conversations in these areas and let your word guide them in the way that they minister to their kids, minister to a lost world in these areas. May we be men and women who are not thought about as what we're against, but may we be men and women who are known as individuals who love and desire to honor and glorify the Father. Lord, we humbly confess we have not always got it right in this area. We pray that you would again begin to renew our minds to be faithful to you moving forward as we walk out these doors. We pray this in your son's glorious name. Amen.